Yeah, man. Whoo. Every time I hear that clip, I'm ready to go. Let's make it happen. We got to have stuff like that before every sermon. I'm ready to go now, man. I hope that you are too. Battle studies week number three. Week three of four, okay, we're going to have battle studies uh, again next Sunday. Then, of course, the Sunday after that is Easter Sunday. really encourage you to make plans to come here, to invite people to come with you. Uh, so, yes, we are going to get going uh, right away. i got a lot of stuff to cover for this third week. Uh, you can turn to, as I begin, you can turn to Second Chronicles chapter 20, okay? I know that this is not necessarily where you did your devotions this morning, Maybe you did. Maybe you did them in Chronicles. If so, that's wonderful. Uh, but Second Chronicles chapter 20, and uh, no shame in using the table of contents, okay? I'm a pastor. I use it, All right? Second Chronicles chapter 20 is where we're going to start, but I want to begin by saying this. Um, hey, a lot of times in life, uh, we have a plan, right? Something happens and you got a plan. Uh, so, uh, a contingency in case of, you know, my wife and I are all about this right now. Uh, we travel around with the circus of two, and uh, <clears throat> she would say three, but I say two. And, uh, and we have with us a diaper bag, right? This bag is all about contingency, right? We've got a plan. This happens, all right, that's in the diaper bag. This happens, oh, it's in the diaper bag, Right? My wife preps it. I'm really impressed with how many different contingencies she's ready for uh, as we go through this adventure called Raising Kids, right? But other times, too, yeah, you blow a tire. All right, there's a plan. There's at least something. If you've got a spare, a jack, you've got the things that you need in the car, you can make it work, right? Flat tire, you got a plan. Uh, something breaks down in the house, you got a plan. Even if you're somebody like me and your plan is to look it up on YouTube and figure out what to do, right? and then try it, and then call your dad when that fails. It's still a plan. But sometimes, there is no plan. Sometimes something happens, and no matter how many different contingencies you've planned for, this one, you don't have a plan for, right? In short, you don't know what to do, okay? And this happens. Let me give you a little illustration by way of a purely hypothetical scenario, okay? Let's say that you are the newly minted, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed youth pastor <laughs> of a wonderful, hospitable, amazing Baptist church on the lakeshore of Michigan. Let's say your name is Joey. <clears throat> and let's say... That in the first handful of months of being here, doing good, things are going well, uh, and one of, the wonderful, one of the wonderful families in the church that you're uh, newly the youth pastor of says, hey, we're going on a vacation, would you house it for us? And you say, great, wonderful opportunity, okay? <clears throat> Let's call them the Dickmans. <clears throat> And let's say in the course of doing this, things are going fine. First few days, things are going fine. Then one day, you're doing what you need to do, taking the dog out, checking the chickens, doing your thing outside to make sure everything is set up. And you proceed to lock yourself out of their house. (laughs) 
in your t-shirt and very short shorts. Yeah. Again, this is purely hypothetical. Let's say there's no evidence because it's purely hypothetical. Let's say if you're this youth pastor, uh, you have your phone on you, but it's dead. So then you manage to break your way into Joel's truck and find a charger so you can charge your phone up just enough to call your boss and say, I don't know when I'm going to be in today. I'm outside of the house in shorts and a t-shirt. Again, purely hypothetical. I don't know what to do. Then let's say uh, in order to make everything all right, you happen to have to break into the Dickman's home via a second level window and crawl in to be able to put your clothes on and go to work that day. Sometimes in life, you don't know what to do. Again, this is purely hypothetical, except it's not because it really happened, but that's for shooting me in the face with a Nerf gun in the office weeks ago. My payback is both thorough and patient. But still, many times, you run up against something for which you have no plan. A crisis unfolds in your life. There is something there on the side of my body that wasn't there before and I'm getting it checked out now. There's a crisis that unfolds and I don't know what to do. Maybe there's a problem that I can't solve that continues to come up over and over again, and I, I'm not sure what to do. Maybe it's simply a decision that you've got to make, and you don't know what to do in the midst of making that decision. There are plenty of times in life where you've run up against something where you have no plan, you don't know what to do. If that's the case for you at any time recently, this sermon is for you. Very simply titled, this sermon is called, What to Do When You Don't Know What to Do. All right, so as we encounter in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, this battle, this is what this is all about. And I'm going to give you in your notes seven things you can do when you don't know what to do. Now, here's the deal. These are seven things you can do. These are not necessarily in any particular order, or this is not necessarily the silver bullet that's going to make everything okay, but I'm telling you that's the nature of the situation you're in. But there's seven things you can do that we learn from this passage when you don't know what to do. Before we begin at the beginning of the chapter, I want to start in verse 12 of the chapter, okay? This is 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 12. The situation is King Jehoshaphat in Judah. Everything is going fine, and then all of the sudden, a vast army, a countless army shows up at their doorstep, and they're terrified. And this is ultimately what they express at the end of their prayer. Again, we'll go to the beginning of the chapter, but in verse 12 it says, Our God, will you not judge them, that army, for we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. First of all, I love that verse. 
You're talking about life verses. I've got a few life verses. This is one of them because sometimes I need to pull this one out. Sometimes that's the content of my prayer. Lord, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. And you'll discover that common thread in these seven things. So let's go back to the beginning, chapter 20, verse 1. All right? Seven things you can do when you don't know what to do. And number one probably seems pretty obvious. It's pray. Okay? Number one is pray. You think Pastor Steve has been talking about prayer an awful lot the last couple of weeks? Yes. That's because prayer is important. Okay? Let's read. Verse 1, after this, the Moabites and Ammonites with some of the Meunites came to wage war against Jehoshaphat. Some people came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army is coming against you from Edom, from the other side of the Dead Sea. Okay, that is the east side of the Dead Sea. Okay, it is already in Hezizan Tamar, that is En Gedi. That's the problem because En Gedi is on the west side of the Dead Sea. It's on the Judah side. They're already at their front doorstep. So verse three, alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord and proclaimed a fast for all of Judah. He resolved to inquire of the Lord. Okay, prayer. Okay, again, it seems obvious, but so often we reach for something else before we go to prayer. In fact, I don't know if you found this true, but I found it true in my life. I reach for a lot of other things before I reach for prayer, right? Have you ever heard this phrase? Somebody said prayer uh, shouldn't be my last resort. It should be my first move, but too often it's my last resort, right? We treat prayer like it's a last resort, like it's a Hail Mary, like when everything else doesn't work, then I'm going to get down on my knees and beg God for help. When in reality, the first moment that I'm confronted with something that is overwhelming, that should be my first move. True? But there's a word I want you to focus in on here. The word is resolved. Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved. He resolved to inquire of the Lord. Um, this word in Hebrew is very much a word of intention. It's, it's a choice. In fact, it's more than a choice. Uh, it says literally in the Hebrew, it says, he set his face to seek the Lord. All right, so you can imagine... It's like he wants to be looking at something else, but he takes his face in his own two hands and turns it toward prayer. That's what I imagine when I see the word set his face, right? He set his face. This tells me a few things. Number one, it tells me that prayer is not a natural choice. We should realize this. Prayer is not a natural choice. It's not natural for me to go to prayer first. Right? So when I do this, if I want to be somebody who's praying regularly in the face of things that are confusing and confounding and I don't know what to do, I need to choose to do it. I need to make an intentional choice and a plan and a rhythm of life that turns me in that direction. Um, it's important to do this because in situations like the one we're talking about here, it describes how he's feeling, right? What's the first word of verse three? It's alarmed. Right? He's alarmed. And, and you can read a few things into that, right? When you're alarmed, you're experiencing a few different things. Probably one of them is feeling kind of threatened, feeling uh, like panicked, right? And I don't know about you, but it is harder for me to intentionally choose prayer when I'm panicking. 
Sometimes I dump right into prayer, but it's kind of a panicked prayer, and I don't spend a lot of time there. I want to do something. I'm a, I, I'm a guy that wants to do something. I want to fix the thing, right? Where are my fix the thing guys in the room? I want to fix the thing. Okay, so I'm going to roll up my sleeves, make a plan. I'm going to do this, when in reality, my first move should be prayer. Of the many reasons why this is the case, I want to highlight one. Okay, clearly, we've been talking about the fact that we should be people who ask God for help. We've been talking about the fact that we should be people who persistently ask God for help. Absolutely true. But here's another reason why. Prayer slows me down. Prayer slows me down. And when I am in a situation where I don't know what to do and I'm feeling the panic rising, everything inside of me is going at lightning speed and prayer slows me down. There's this uh, phenomenon where I'm in a situation where I'm alarmed and uh, People talk about it like this. It's fight, flight, or freeze, right? Well, I had Matt create for me a confusing Venn diagram. I'm going to put it up for you. Okay. Confused? Yeah. All right. That's okay. There's three different responses that we tend to have when we're alarmed, depending on the kind of person that you are and the situation that you're in. Freezing means I just don't do anything, right? And what tends to happen there is uh, I just kind of numb out. I don't do anything and the situation's freaking me out and I just kind of go numb and I don't do anything. Fighting, I, I act, I attack, right? I attack a situation, I dominate the situation, whatever the case may be, if that's your personality type. Or flight, I run from it, hide from it, uh, quit, uh, go away, bury my head in the sand, right? These are the things that we tend to do depending on the personality that we have. Sometimes we do things in between them too. Like if I'm a little bit flight and a little bit fight, that tends to be passive aggressive, right? Do you see that? If I'm a little bit flight and a little bit freeze, I evade. So I'm just kind of evading the situation. I'm not totally running away, but I'm not really doing anything about it. If I'm a little bit freeze and a little bit fight, which is an interesting combination, I bottle things up until they explode inside of me, okay? I'm just explaining this quickly to you to say, right in the center is this thing called prayer. It's right in the middle. And the reason it's right in the middle is because it slows down all of those responses. Prayer, conversation with God, in the presence of God. It allows me to, in a situation where I don't know what to do, it allows me to feel what I'm feeling, right, without it dictating reality. So I am able to, instead of freezing and numbing out, I'm able to appropriately address my feelings in the situation and take appropriate action. Instead of fighting and attacking, I can take appropriate action. Why? Because I've consulted God and I've slowed myself down. Instead of running from the situation, I can appropriately face the situation. These are the benefits, just some of the benefits, of prayer as the first move. So all of that to say, you run into a situation, you don't know what to do, a vast army has showed up at your doorstep. Prayer is the first move. Get on my knees and be reoriented to what God is going to tell me in this situation. That's number one. Number two is in the same verse, and you might have picked it up already. Number two is fast. What to do when you don't know what to do. These are just some things you can do. Let's keep reading. Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all of 
Judah. Uh, now, when's the last time you fasted? <laughs> Intentionally, not accidentally. Like, I forgot, I, mean, I forgot about lunch. I fasted. No. Intentional fast. This is one that we don't do very often. We don't do this. And, and there's a reason for that. It's not like a regular part of the spiritual discipline rhythm of the Christian. It's more like a response to an extreme situation. But even in that case, we don't usually do this. Jesus did it, right? The apostles did it, New Testament. The church did it. And usually always in response to an extreme situation. And so I want to, I want to recommend this to us this morning, right? I want to reframe it a little bit too. Uh, what is fasting? Okay, this is fasting, a ceasing of food, but not simply to cease the food. It's then to replace it with the nourishment of the Bible and prayer, right? That's to fast. That's what it is, okay? When do we fast? We fast when we are in a desperate situation that is beyond us, and we need God to move or we need to hear from him as soon as possible. <clears throat> this is when we fast, but so often, we don't, we don't go there. We're not used to doing that. But I believe that there is something there that God has for us that is completely separate from anything else that we could do because nothing communicates to your own body that we live on every word that comes out of the mouth of God, right? Not on bread alone. Nothing communicates that than to stop eating for a time. We should do this. Fasting, why do we fast? We fast because it intensifies the clarity of my plea before God. It actually focuses me and it stands out to the Lord. It's tuning everything else out and tuning God in. So I just want to recommend that. In a desperate situation, in a situation where you don't know what to do, not a bad move, right? Start out with prayer, not a bad mood, move to fast. We only fast for a certain period of time, and as Jesus said in the New Testament, we don't fast so that we're showing off, right? Sometimes when I do this, I'll do it, I'll say, I'm not doing lunches this week. So I still eat breakfast and dinner, but I'm not doing lunches. When lunch comes around and I feel the hunger pain at that moment, I redirect myself to God's word and remind myself that I'm fully dependent upon him for everything. There's something that happens there, and there's a closeness with God that is invaluable in a situation where I don't know what to do when I remind myself, man, I am not dependent upon food. I am dependent upon the words of God and the presence of God. Right? So that is number two, okay? There's some things you can do when you don't know what to do. Pray, that's number one. Fast, that's number two. And number three, I'll explain in a minute, is remember. Remember. Let's continue reading in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Verse four. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. Then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord and in front of the new courtyard and said, and here's the prayer that he lifts up. Pay attention to what he says. Lord, the God of our ancestors, are you not the God who is in heaven? 
You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand you. Our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? They have lived in it and have built in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if calamity comes upon us, whether a sword of judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name and will cry out to you in our distress, and you will hear us and save us. But now... Here are men from Ammon, Moab, Mount Seir, whose territory you would not allow Israel to invade when they came from Egypt. So they turned away from them and did not destroy them. See how they're repaying us. That's sarcasm. Thanks for doing us. Thanks for the favor, guys, for not destroying us. Now they're going to come and attack us. By coming to drive us out of the possession you gave us as an inheritance. And then this is where they drop this line. Our God Will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Remember, in this prayer, look at verse 7. It says, our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel? They're remembering something that God had done in the past. And I want to bring something up that I've suggested before. I know Pastor McNeil has suggested it before. Um, but you need to have a log of the things that God has done for you. And you got to have it accessible. And when you end up in a situation where you don't know what to do, you got to pull it out. Right? How many of us have started a log of something like this and then maybe we've stopped Or maybe we never got started, but we kind of vaguely remember some things that God has done for us. Or maybe we do have it, but it's kind of, it's kind of somewhere in the house on a shelf and I'm not sure. You got to have this thing readily available for situations like this and you got to pull it out because here's what happens, right? Here's what happens. I'm in a situation and I don't know what to do. When I don't know what to do, what begins to erode a little bit is my trust in God because I'm, I'm looking at the vast army that's now on this side of the Dead Sea and wondering, what's going to happen here? Well, it's a really helpful thing to your faith to be able to remember what God has done in the past in a few different ways. Number one, you got to remember what he's done in the Bible, okay? You got to remember what he's done in the Bible, Right? I want you to shout it out just in this room right here, a few things that you remember that God has done in the Bible. What has he done? Say it loud. Split the Red Sea. Defeated the giants. What else? Raised the dead. Fed the 5,000. Healed the sick. Turned water into wine. Here's another one for you. Broke down prison walls with songs of praise. Okay. Even just right there, I could feel it in the room. The level of faith just increased a little bit. I could feel it. Could you feel it? That's the power of remembering. When you're in a situation, you don't know what to do, Satan loves to attack that moment by introducing uncertainty into your life and saying, hey, listen, listen, I know God's been there for you in the past, but he might fail you this time. He might be asleep at the switch for this one. This one might be, this one might go differently. 
And you can stand there looking back over periods of time in scripture and say, no, the God who turned the water into wine, the God who healed the sick, the God who raised the dead, the same God who broke down prison walls with songs of praise, that God is the one who's in this room with me right now in this situation. And because he does not change, he was faithful then and he's going to be faithful now. Do you see the power of remembering? You got to remember what he's done in the Bible. You also got to remember what he's done in your life, your life. I know you got stories. You got them. You've got stories that God has done things for you in the past. Someone got saved that you've been praying would get saved. Someone was healed when it didn't look like they were going to be healed, right? These things that God has done, write them down. I've got one written down. I'm going to tell you a little bit about it later in the sermon. But I've got one written down that blows me away to this moment. But here's the thing. That's not always at the front of my mind until I open up my logbook of what God has done, my rock pile, and I read it. And I read, March of 2019, God did this. And it strengthens my faith, okay? Don't know what to do? Pray. Get down on your knees, pray. Fast, Right? Seek God with all your heart, fast, remember. Here's number four. Go to church. (laughs) Look at verse 13. All the men of Judah, with their wives and children and little ones, stood before the Lord. I love that verse. Not just because I'm a pastor and I like it when people go to church. But look at everybody who's included. All the men of Judah with their wives and children and little ones. Okay, we're not just talking about children here. We're talking about their babies. Everybody gathered together, right? Look around you. This is what we're doing. And yet, so often, when I'm faced with a situation, I don't know what to do. This is the first thing that drops off. I'm freaking out in life, so I'm going to go away from the Christian community? I'm freaking out in life. I'm not sure what to do. I'm really confused. I could use help and assistance right now, so I'm going to go isolate myself and stay in my bedroom? This is what Satan wants to convince us is the right thing to do. It's not the right thing to do. The right thing to do is come to church. Not, about, not moralistically, not like checking off a line of behavior, but because there are people here who love you and want to help you. And this is how God gives you his help is through the people of the church, right? How many times have we been helped, blessed by the people in this very room in situations in which we didn't know what to do? So I just want to remind you, okay? Don't know what to do. One of the things you can do, one of the things you should do, go to church. That's number four. Here's number five. When you go to church... Listen. Not simply to me. Look at verse 14. Then, circle that word in your Bible if you got it. I want to remind you what happened in verse 13. Everybody's going to church. That's what happened in verse 13. Then verse 14. Then 
Then, after they're gathered together, not before, but at that point when they're gathered together, then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jeel, the son of Metaniah, a Levite and a descendant of Asaph, as he stood in the assembly. He said, listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, march down against them. They will be climbing up by the pass of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the gorge in the desert of Jeruel. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your position, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you, Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out to face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. Well, that's a powerfully encouraging word, right? So I'm pointing out here. When did it come? When they were gathered. God speaks all the time through his word, correct? God speaks all the time through his word. And God may even give me a word as I'm in prayer privately by myself, but God always speaks at church, does he not? Hopefully, we're preaching from the Bible. We're preaching from the Bible. God's talking to you right now. He's talking. And so the key is we, got, we need to listen to the word that God is giving, whatever that, whatever that word is. And maybe it's so, like, well, I don't know that it's a word that really is relevant to me right now. And the only reason that we feel that way at times is because we're not asking the right question. I think a lot of times we come to church and we ask the question, uh, what is God saying to me? And, and that's not the best question because I tend to be listening for a very limited amount of subjects right? I, want, I would like to hear from God about this. When in all reality, though God knows what your situation is, the subject line that he wants to talk to you about is about his greatness or his glory or his faithfulness. I know that you're in a situation where you don't know what to do and you're confused and confounded. I understand that. But what you need to hear more than anything right now is that I am awesome and I'm your God and I'm on your side. A better question to ask is I go to church and read the Bible. Okay, Bible study tip right here. What does this say about who God is? What is God telling me about himself? Is he telling me about his faithfulness? Is he telling me about his love? Is he telling me about his justice? Is he telling me about his goodness? What are the things that he's telling me about about himself? And that will be enough to be nourished on. But so often I'm not listening for that. I'm listening for other things. So when we don't know what to do, listen for what God is saying, particularly about himself, okay? There's just things you can do. Number one, pray. Number two, fast. Don't discount that one. Number three, remember. Go to church. Number four. Number five is listen. Here's number six. Do the next right thing. Don't know what to do? Do the next right thing. I want you to read verse 17 there again. This is God talking to the people, facing a vast army, no idea what to do. They're saying, he's saying this to them. You will not have to fight this battle. Okay. So I can go home then? Nope. Take up your positions. 
Stand firm and see the deliverance the Lord will give you. Okay. When I'm in a situation and I don't know what to do, maybe you've experienced this. I would really love the full-on clarity from God, meaning every step of the way. Okay, God tells me this is going to work out. I would really love the whole play-by-play of how it's going to work out. Would you like that in a situation like that? Where God says, okay, Steve, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to do this, and then I'll do this, and then this other thing will happen, and then after that happens, this person will do this, and then I will move this way, and then it'll work out like this in the end. I would love to have that breakdown from Jesus, but he never gives it to me. I'm a little salty about that. No. That's because many times what Jesus does is it's like traveling at night, He gives me enough of what I can see in the headlights in front of me, and that's it. He just gives me the next right thing to do. I don't know what to do. Okay, we'll do this. Well, I'm like, how is that going to solve this situation? And it might be as simple as one of the other items on the list. Go to church. Well, I've got this situation. I'm not sure what to do about it. Go to church. I told you I was going to tell you about one of my rock pile items. Here it is. In 2019, me and Caitlin, living in Grand Rapids, Michigan, pregnant with Lincoln. I have recently accepted a new job. This one. Yeah, but somebody's still happy about that. I've accepted this job, which is gonna, it's going to require a move. And so we know we need to find a house, right? We know we need to find a house. And it gets into March, and we've been looking, we've been looking, we've been looking, and it's not really going very well. And, uh, and finally, there is one. And so we're going through the process. Those of you who purchased a home, you know you've got to go through the process of securing the financing for the home, right? And I didn't know how tenuous this process was until I got into it for the first time. Caitlin was in a situation where she's leaving a job to move up here where she's going to mostly just be at home and then work a little bit. So she's leaving that job. I was taking a new job. So uh, income numbers were changing all over the place. Uh, Long story short, my credit had taken a huge beating due to my terrible decisions uh, in student loan world uh, 20 years prior. And uh, through all of that, just getting turned down by banks. Okay, not awesome, by God's grace, by the way, and Caitlin's brilliance with money, my credit score is much better now. So anyway, that's how the story's ending. But hey, just telling you. But this is a situation that we're in, working it out, trying to trust God. I'm saying, Lord, I got my family out on a limb here. I've got them halfway there. I got to find somewhere to be and what's going to happen here. And I remember the moment. I remember it. I know exactly where I was sitting. I was sitting in a building working for Ada Bible Church. I was getting ready to go and preach a message before that moment. About half an hour before, I'm sitting at a table looking at my phone going, who can I call? What move can I make? Because I need to get a home and I need to get this one and I don't have the financing for it and I'm not sure what to do. When you're in this situation, you want to try crazy stuff. Like applying for all kinds of loans from not reputable places. 
And I'm feeling all that in the moment, and then wisdom comes through a friend. And he just says, listen, tomorrow morning, just start going to local banks in the area, just show up personally, explain the situation, explain what's going on, and see what happens. And I said, that's a terrible idea. (laughs) But okay, I'm out of options. I don't know what to do, so I'm just doing this next thing. This next thing, I think it came from the Lord, I'm just going to do it. Long story short, this is what we do. Through that connection is another connection. Through that connection is another connection. And then connected to the exact right person who understood our situation, understood why our situation was happening, and took it upon herself to make this happen for us. I'm not kidding you. About two and a half weeks after that freak out moment that I had, we took possession. Sometimes all you can do is the next right thing. So just do the next right thing and trust God that he's got the plan worked out. He's telling them this vast army, this vast army showing up. We don't know what to do. What are we going to do? And God says, take up your positions. That's it. Just do that. It's like, what? Take up our positions. Then what's going to happen? He doesn't tell them that part. He just says, you're not going to have to take care of this. I'm going to take care of this. You take your positions. And so there may be something, a a bit of wisdom that God has given you in a situation where you don't know what to do. You just need to do the next right thing and trust that God has a plan. Because you can't control it all, and neither can I. But the one who has everything in control knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly how this step leads to the next step and leads to the next step. You let him have the big picture in mind and trust him enough to just do the next right thing, whatever that is. Right? That's number six. Here's number seven. Praise. Look at verse 18. Jehoshaphat bowed down with his face to the ground. And all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down and worshiped before the Lord. I want to remind you, this is before the victory. Then some Levites from the Kohathites and Korathites stood up and praised the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. Early in the morning, they left for the desert of Tekoa. As they set out, again, before the victory, Joshua stood and said, listen to me, Judah and people of Jerusalem, have faith in the Lord your God and you will be upheld. Have faith in his prophets and you will be successful. After consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness as they went out ahead of the army saying, give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. And then verse 22, I love this. As they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir who were invading Judah, and they were defeated. What did God do? Won the battle. What did the people do? They praised. When God says, this is not a battle that you are going to have to fight, you understand what he means, is what he's saying is, I am doing the work here. I'm doing the work. I'm going to get you where you need to go. One of your chief jobs along the way is to praise. Now, here's the thing. We tend to, we tend to praise after 
the thing happens. Which we should, right? God has delivered me through this scenario where I didn't know what to do and I didn't know how it was going to work out and God got me to the other side of it. Praise God. And we should do that. But what happens if we become people who start to do this before the situation is worked out, before any clarity comes, before anything truly works out and I'm still in this situation that is terrifying and alarming and I'm not sure what to do. What if I lift up my arm then and say, praise God? I don't do that that often. But it's important to do because it separates Listen, it separates my praise from my circumstance. I should praise when good circumstances come, for they are from God. But my habit of praise cannot be linked up so closely with my circumstances that good circumstances are the only time that I praise my good God. I should be able to praise when the circumstances are not good or muddy, or confusing, or overwhelming. In fact, even in those moments, it's most important for me to praise. So I got a little phrase that I want to teach you, okay? I'm going to praise him anyway. Okay? Say it with me. I'm going to praise him anyway. Confused? I'm going to praise him anyway. Disheartened? I'm going to praise him anyway. Why? Because is God great when my situation isn't? Is it still true? Does he still deserve praise even if my situation is not awesome right now? Yes. Does he still deserve praise even if I don't know exactly what's going on right now and I don't have the whole map out in front of me? Does he still deserve praise then? Yes, he does. He deserves praise all the time because God is good, period. Independent of what happens in my life. Independent of the situation that I'm in. God is good. God is glorious and should be praised because Romans 12 says that when I offer up my body as a living sacrifice to God, holy and pleasing to him, it's my rational worship. It makes sense because I'm a created being and he's the creator. But here's what this does to my heart when I'm willing to actually do this. When I'm willing to actually praise, when the circumstance isn't good, it reorients my heart to the reality of who God is, even in the midst of my crazy circumstance. And when I am transfixed by that, I am reminded my life, my battles, all of this stuff is not about me. It's ultimately a story about him. And it's a story about his glory and his victories in my life, not just me having a good life or not just me having the life that I want. And so this morning, I want to say, let's be people who praise before the victory comes, right? Let's put this into practice. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up, right? Is this the whole team or just you, Matt? Whole team. Let's get them on up. I'm going to ask them to come back up. And I want us to stand up and sing loud, okay? Right? This is going to be a song that you know. I made sure of that. Right? So stand up. Let's stand together. 
as the worship team gets settled in and starts to play the song here, I'm going to share with you something briefly that I saw this week that moved me. We have spent time praying for the people of Ukraine, and we have given financially to the direct front lines of Ukrainian refugees coming into Moldova, which we sent that money off this past week, by the way, last week. So tracking along with the news, I saw a video of gathered Ukrainian Christians in a home singing praise to God when all is chaos around them. And I think to myself, I'm not sure there's a situation that would be more alarming than that one to me. Alarming. And yet in that moment, before deliverance has come, when the battle is still raging, when all of the things are still falling apart, they're praising God. And it reminds me, God deserves to be praised no matter what's happening in my life. And so you don't know what to do. You're in a situation where you're confused. You have no idea what to do, what step to take. If nothing else, you can lift your hands up and praise God because he always deserves to be praised. When we don't know what, we know who. And that is enough. The people said, we have no power to face this vast army. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Turns out there's actually quite a number of things we can do and we don't know what to do. And all of them have to do with that. Our eyes are on you. Let's be people who praise before the victory comes, before the clarity comes this week. Do it in your car, wherever you can. Give him the praise he's due no matter what's happening.